Welcome to Living Hero. I'm Jari Chevalier, and our guest today is Rian Eisler. She is an internationally recognized scholar, a social scientist, keynote speaker, activist, and author. She is best known for her 1987 international bestseller, The Chalice and the Blaze, now in 22 languages. Her most recent book is The Real Wealth of Nations, Creating a Caring Economics. Rian Eisler has served as a consultant to world leaders of business and government. Rian is president of the Center for Partnership Studies based in Pacific Grove, California. She is included in the award-winning book, Great Peacemakers, along with Mahatma Gandhi, Mother Teresa, and Martin Luther King. With every respect, I welcome Rian Eisler. I am just thrilled to have this chance to talk with you and also to share our conversation with others. Well, thank you. You are one of the great living systems thinkers, a big-picture thinker. And in all your writings and lectures, you point to an urgent need for greater consciousness, caring, and creativity in the very structures and value systems of the global society. So just to begin with, for those who may not know you or may not be familiar with your early background, what originally motivated you and what continues to fuel your commitment to this advocacy? Well, the short answer is passion. (laughs) The somewhat longer answer is why the passion. And, well, I mean, in a very real sense, of course, uh, I am not only passionate about this as a scholar and a writer and a speaker, but as a mother and a grandmother, uh, deeply concerned, as so many of us are, about the kind of future our children will inherit. But the passion really is much more deeply rooted in my own childhood, because I was born in Europe, in Vienna, at a time that in terms of the two new social categories identified by my research, the domination system and the partnership system, was a time of massive regression to the domination side. It was the rise to power of the Nazis, first in Germany and then my native Austria. And we really uh, only escaped with our lives, my parents and I, by a miracle. And I grew up in the industrial slums of Havana, where I also later found out that almost every one of the rest of our relatives, aunts, uncles, cousins, grandparents, had been murdered by the Nazis during the Holocaust. So very early I really became conscious. Uh, Well, I became conscious of the fact that there is so much cruelty, so much violence, and I never could accept that that's how it has to be. So my research is really motivated by a search of finding, well, uh, we hear so much today about a cultural transformation, but a cultural transformation from what to what? And the identification of these two uh, configurations for society, the domination system and the partnership system, was a way to answer this question that there really is a better alternative that it's viable and practical and that it will happen only 
if we become aware of it and if we join in making it come to life. Yes, uh, what is at stake, though, is that the, the power structures would be shifting. There would be a redistribution of power, and I think that those who now have the short end of the stick are more likely to want the changes to come about, uh, whereas the people who hold a great deal of power in terms of wealth and military strength and political strength don't generally want to let that go. And so how do you really see this coming about? What, what do you think it would take? Well, I think what it is taking is the awareness that even those who are in positions of dominance, that they've got what I sometimes call a first-class cabin in a sinking ship. Uh-huh. That basically the mix of high technology and the domination system, whether it's nuclear weapons or biological weapons or uh, whether it's the once fabled conquest of nature using high technology, that is not sustainable. But it really uh, goes much deeper because what we're talking about here is not only a redistribution of power but a redefinition of power. And a power uh, is really conceptualized very differently depending on the degree to which a well, a family, a business, a larger society orients to either end of the partnership domination continuum. My first book, as you know, drawing from this research was The Chalice and the Blade. And those are metaphors uh, for power. The blade, of course, is clearly the power appropriate for domination systems. Uh, top-down rankings ultimately maintained by fear and force. It's the power to dominate, to control, to destroy, to take life. But there's also another power, which is the power of the chalice, which is the power to give life, to nurture life, to illuminate life. It has a spiritual uh, dimension in the real sense of spirituality. And it's very interesting because we've been moving towards that, even in the corporate and organizational development literature, you will read today about leaders' power being used to empower rather than disempower. Well, that's symptomatic, isn't it, of some movement towards the partnership side. We are reading that the really good manager isn't the cop or controller, uh, that it's someone who inspires, who motivates, who facilitates, who elicits from others their best capacities. So we really are trying to move towards the partnership side, and it isn't only the classical conflict between those on bottom and those on top, but there are people who are in positions of some power in the sense of, well, being in government, uh, being in corporations, being in schools, or, or heads of family, really, uh, who are understanding that we need to just redefine how we use power. Well, this election certainly was a wonderful indication that we are moving more forcefully in that direction. Definitely. I mean, uh, certainly the American people spoke, 
and they spoke loud and clear that they really were in many ways rejecting the old top-down system. Well, of course, we have a lot of work still to do. I mean, the election of Obama, I think a lot of people sort of, we were holding our breath, weren't we? <laughs> yes. I mean, and now we feel we can breathe. But actually, now is the time that we really have to start working even harder because if it's going to be business as usual, uh, for example, we need to really, really see to it, and I mean see to it, uh, give feedback about it, that more women are given cabinet posts and not just the usual education, you know, but some of the powerful posts. I mean, if Bush could appoint Condoleezza Rice, a woman, I think Barack Obama, really needs to be informed that we women expect that of him now. And I'm hoping it will happen. The signs, the very early signs, aren't all that great. I mean, the economic task force is a very, very sprinkling of women. I think it's four out of 17. I mean, that's just not acceptable. Yes, I would love to give you the chance to talk about your most recent book, The Real Wealth of Nations, since we're sort of on the subject of uh, the geopolitical uh, power scene, um, so that you can share, I know this book is just about to come out in paperback. It just came it out It just in came paper. out, fantastic. As um, we speak. So what is The Real Wealth of Nations? Well, it really relates very much to what we were talking about as you'll see in a moment, because, I mean, if we really think about it, the real wealth of nations actually consists of the contributions of people and of nature. So we need what we haven't had, economic indicators, economic policies, economic practices that really give visibility and value to the most important work, the work of caring for people starting in early childhood, and the work of caring for our Mother Earth. Now, the problem uh, is that this is very much related to what we were talking about. Uh, caring, caregiving, has been stereotypically associated with women, the soft, the feminine, and there is this terrible misconception, terrible misconception, that that's not economically effective. And the Real Wealth of Nations shows again and again that, well, the subtitle of the book is Creating a Caring Economics, that caring economics and business practices pay, and they pay not only in human and environmental terms, but they pay very, very well in dollars and cents. And it's a tool for us to use. To And I'm hoping that if enough people use this tool, send it to their elected representatives, send it to their managers, use it, that we can start focusing on what we really need to focus on, which are what are the values that still drive present economic systems? What are the rules of the game? This present economic debacle couldn't have happened if we had had a caring economics. Or an involved, a truly involved citizenry, people who were really out there counter-lobbying for what the average person needs in their family life, in their work environment, and the kind of rewards that are truly fulfilling. 
And this is absolutely true. And of course, the large turnout for uh, President-elect Obama and the fact that so many of us were involved, I mean, not only giving money, but calling, you know, to the swing states. Uh, what he managed to do is really a creation of a community, very much of a partnership community, but now... Now, what's going to happen to that community? Are they all going to go back to their disparate little organizations, which are very important? I mean, I have such a small organization, too, the Center for Partnership Studies, except that ours is very much in terms of, as you say, systems change. Uh, or can we really stay together and also engage others who weren't involved in the campaign in a real cultural transformation? And that requires long-term not just short-term, putting finger in the dike kinds of approaches. And I'm hoping a lot of people have sent the real wealth of nations to both Obama and to Biden, to Michelle uh, Obama. I'm really requesting that people do that because if they keep getting copies of this book, uh, they're going to start saying, well, wait a minute, we better look at this. And it does have some very practical solutions so that we don't have, well, the terrible inequities that we see and also so that we don't have periodic economic collapses. Yes, well, I read the book and I think that your arguments are very strong and well-supported and I hope that the book is read and well-considered by people who have the best interest of the people in mind and are in a position to do something, really, at this time. I, I think the Obama election reawakened hope in people who who kind of shut down maybe as far back as the assassination of the Kennedys. And I think that there is this surge right now of a positive feeling that I do join you in hoping that people are going to make something of. Well, for it to happen, as you know, it will really take what you spoke about, an engaged citizenry because with all the best intentions, now, you know, the challenge is not to do what I always talk about, which is think outside the box, because that's really what a concept like hearing economics is about. I mean, consider for a moment, it's it's really almost ludicrous that the same administration, the Bush administration, that kept screaming socialism, at the thought of regulations of the financial sector now has nationalized half the financial sector. And if that isn't socialism, I don't know what is, right? It's completely so, ironic to say we want less government as as basically the Republican platform and we have so much more government control and interference than we had before. Well, the point of it also, of course, is that the issue really isn't capitalism or socialism. We have to have both central planning and a free market, but as I point out in The Real Wealth of Nations, we've been playing with a very strange short deck of cards. Our map of what is economically productive uh, leaves out the very sectors that we must invest in the household economy where children 
are cared for. You know, economists keep talking about high-quality human capital being essential for the post-industrial economy. Well, that starts in early childhood. We're talking about the natural economy. We're talking about the volunteer community economy. And we have to find ways of really rewarding that work in tangible ways. Because, I mean, the United States has fallen so terribly behind during these years of regression to the domination side of the continuum that, according to a CIA-sponsored report, we ranked 42nd in measures of infant mortality behind every other industrialized nation, behind poorer nations. So this is not only inhuman, but it is economically suicidal. We already have one of the highest, the highest functional illiteracy rate in the industrialized world. You can't solve that by just bailing out failed mega corporations. The only way to solve that is to really step back and re-examine the economic indicators which don't include that work as productive, even though it can and has been quantified, as I show in this work. We really need to rethink economics, and that's what my work is about. And I don't expect it to happen overnight, but I think that with this new administration, I believe that if enough of us say, wait a minute, really, don't just play with that short dick. Think of how you can really plan to have a real cultural and economic transformation because otherwise it won't work. Well, one of the things I've appreciated so much about your work is that you leave no stone unturned. You look at things from all angles. And I wonder if we could dig a little deeper to try to understand, to take a look at the the psychological under pinnings of domination and control, the atrocities that have taken place over and over again in recorded history, people committing abominable crimes against each other, it's difficult for me to understand how anyone could do that to another human being or another group of human beings. And you've studied this. What is really at the root of humanity's inhumanity to each other? Well, the thing is that as a systems person, I can't just say here is the one thing. Okay. It's a confluence of various factors. Certainly, if you look at most political analyses studying this, uh, again, it, there's a huge blind spot. Uh, if you take a political science course, you look at all kinds of, you know, oh, the Nazi, the rise of the Nazis was because of they got uh, short shrift, you know, in the Versailles Treaty and the economics. Well, yeah, these were probably factors, but they don't consider the fact that the kind of psychology, and this is what you're bringing up, of course, that makes it possible for people to do these terrible things really has to be implanted quite early in the human brain, doesn't it? And that happens with the primary human relations. The relations that are ignored in political analyses, parent-child relations and gender relations. If those, I mean, it's not coincidental that the Nazis come to power, let's get women back into their, quote, traditional place, 
in a, quote, traditional family. The Rightist Fundamentalist Alliance here in the United States, it's the same slogan. In fact, whether fundamentalists are Muslim or Christian or whatever or Hindu, they're really dominator fundamentalists because what they're about is the configuration of the domination system and it holds together. It is top-down rule in the tribe or state. It is really rigid male control in the family and a very punitive family where children not only get this notion that they equate difference beginning with the fundamental difference between female and male with either dominating or being dominated, but they learn very early on that it's very dangerous, very painful to question authority no matter how unjust. And third, it's a high not only reliance on violence, but even idealization of violence. Now, these are factors that standard political analyses need to take into account because if you don't look at the, how the primary human relations are structured and how they go with this configuration, whether it's in Idi Amin's Uganda, whether it's in Khomeini's Iran or the Taliban, whether it was the Nazis, it doesn't matter. You keep seeing it. And that's what I kept seeing in my work because I drew from the larger database. Mm -hmm. I think Alice Miller did some important work in this regard, also looking at uh, the deep psychological underpinnings. She definitely did, and she contributed very much to our understanding on the individual level. I mean, both uh, Hitler and actually Stalin and uh, Saddam Hussein uh, had very brutal childhoods in families, you know, where women were really subordinate. But it goes beyond the individual. You know, we're always talking about the few bad apples. No, we're talking about a systemic problem. And my interest is what happens in social systems, you see. I mean, why did people accept these people as leaders? It isn't only fear. Look look at what happened in the Palestinian territories. They voted for Hamas, for a violent terrorist group. Why? Because it mirrors their family. The you see what I'm saying? It's the familiar structure. It's the familiar structure projected into the larger societal picture. Absolutely, and that's why a lot of people voted for Bush. I mean, not that I can compare Bush. You know, he was the worst president in history for the United States, I guess, but, you know, he wasn't a terrorist. I mean, we didn't have police and we didn't have people, you know, being killed and all the stuff that goes on, you know, in the Palestinian territories. I mean, one of the things, they don't tolerate any dissent. It isn't only against Israel, but uh, the statistics are very sad, which is that more people have been killed for, quote, collaborating by doing business with the Israelis than in the fights with Israel. And and that's in-group versus out-group. You know, if you're not with me, I mean, of course, Bush used to say that too. If you're not with me, you're against me, right? But they carry it to an extreme because it's not coincidental that these cultures also have so-called honor crimes against women. And what is an honor crime? A man's honor is equated with his complete and absolute control of the body of a woman. You see, it all hangs together. Mm -hmm. Well, there is an insane level of power. You know, this moving towards an absolute power is 
just quite the opposite of the power of love. And I always wonder why somebody would choose the love of power over the power of love. But I guess that's uh-huh. the thinking of a woman. Well, and there is also the thinking of some men. Because, you know, of course, the chalice is more the power of love. It's empowering. also needs to be empowering for us as women, not just of others, by the way, because we've fallen for that notion. It took us, it's very difficult even now for women to work for ourselves, you know? I it's, do know that. And, and yes, it's a, it's a really tough road. Well, we've been socialized a certain way. And uh, there's so much in the culture, you know, from the biblical, uh, and it isn't just Western, I mean, my gosh, you know, if you, even in Hindu iconography where Shakti and Shiva, you know, Shiva's supposed to get his power from Shakti, but you look at a lot of the iconography, she's half his size. So, okay, who's got the power, right? Mm. Well, size is one kind of power, but of course there is the willpower, and I've actually often thought that what the male is on the outside is what the female is on the inside, sort of like the yin-yang symbol and vice versa. So really, uh, a man is very muscularly strong and larger, but a woman has a strength of will and ability to endure that I, I don't always see in a man. Well, um, we have to really, uh, I mean, I'm looking for the day when we can sort of really find out what the real difference between women and men is, because right now so much of it is socialization. You know, men are brought up uh, in rigid domination systems uh, to at all costs not be like a woman. And to not so, really feel their feelings deeply or express them. Well, they get feelings, you know. They get contempt and they get anger, which are feelings that are appropriate for domination. But they can't be soft or sensitive or nonviolent because otherwise they're not real men. They're, they're wizards, they're sissies, weak sisters. They're like women. And so if we don't get rid of that socialization, also women's socialization, I mean, there's some wonderful traits that are masculine, assertiveness. But it isn't masculine, it's a human trait. If women were not so forbidden, you know, if a woman is assertive, she's, she's an angry bitch, right? Yes, right. I'm working with so, nine and ten year olds right now, and that's not something I ordinarily do. So I'm seeing just how early these roles are taken on. The boys, first of all, they cluster together, and the girls cluster together, and the boys, uh, when we do physical exercise, they, their expression of it, if I say dance, their expressions are more like martial arts, and the girls are doing much more fluid and dance-like movements from the girls, even at but that look point. at what's modeled for them. Yeah, they're playing video games and they're blowing each other up in these games yeah. and so forth. Yeah. Mm. So, you know, many of the more cynical um, thinkers among us have expressed that human nature itself is fundamentally flawed and there's going to be no getting over that, that what the people talking about a shift in consciousness are really asking for is like a new species, a new human. 
And you, you have expressed a different view of human nature that speaks of a range of possibilities for the human. And I'd really like to hear more about that. And also, to what extent you see it possible for a person's nature, once formed by the family and school and the society and all these influences, to what extent do you think that a person can be reformed or fundamentally changed through therapy or whatever? Well, I'll start with the second part because I sometimes uh, say that I know that transformation is possible because I've experienced it. And if you read one of my earlier books, The Power of Partnership, which is really sort of a self-help book, uh, as close as I could come to a self-help book. <laughs> so I would have to laugh if these self-help books you know, were so effective. Why do we have so many of them, you know? But I try to do a very realistic self-help book. And I do tell my own story quite a bit about my own transformation. I think we can change much more than people believe. But, and it's a big but, we really have to become aware of two things. One, that a lot of the tapes in our heads at play, take gender tapes, for example, you know, they play loud and clear still, that really uh, that's just what they are. There's something that we've been taught. And it wasn't our parents' fault because they were taught the same thing, in fact, more so. The second thing is that we need to become aware that there is another alternative, what I call the partnership alternative. And what that means is that we can have relations of respect, of caring, of accountability, not only with others, but with ourselves. Because a lot of the voices in our heads are really dominator voices. You know, you're doing this wrong, or you're not being feminine enough, or you're not being masculine enough. So becoming aware that we've got that, and becoming aware of another alternative is very, very important. And that's why quite a few therapists uh, continue to use my books and ask their patients and their clients to read them because it puts it in a larger context than the usual where my parents did this and that and the other. But getting back to your first question. May I ask you, Rianne, what was your path of transformation or, or changing your conditioning? Well, it was a rocky path because, I mean, I was very traumatized as a child, obviously, from what I just told you. And I wasn't even aware of that so much. And it really took some time for me to begin to get, you know, this strange phrase that we use to get in touch with myself. <laughs> it sounds sort of strange, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, we why shouldn't we be in touch with ourselves? But if we're traumatized, we, we aren't. And so much of dominator socialization is traumatic. I mean, think of kids being hit. Think of, um, well, I mean, if you grow up in a very, very rigid dominator family, you're terrorized. And the shaming. And the shaming. I mean, kids need rules. I mean, we really do. We need to know that there are certain expectations and certain rules. But to get back to me, um, it was a long, arduous road for me, and I was very lost for part of my life. And I think people find that very hard to believe. 
because one of the things I just did a book signing, you know, for my new paper edition of The Real Wealth of Nations yesterday, and what people kept telling me is, oh, you bring so much clarity. Well, yeah, it's because I've got a very good analytical system, the partnership and domination system, which everybody can use once they begin to read uh, these books. And, and by the way, partnership doesn't just mean working together because terrorists work together, monopolies work together. It's that whole configuration. Um, but anyway, back to me. So it took me some time and it took uh, quite a bit of work, actually. And I'm still working on it. But you know what? It's great <laughs> once you really go on that path. Are you a meditator? I find meditation, per se, very difficult because of my early traumas, because I get these very scary images. So, But I do a lot of breathing, which I guess is a form of meditation. It is. I find that, for me, being engaged which I am, I'm very passionately engaged in what I do, is a wonderful healing. Of course, I'm very, very blessed because I have, in my second marriage, I've I've, I've got a real partnership, you know, with my wonderful, brilliant husband, David Loy, whose own books are very, very important. And by the way, I might as well say that if you're interested in his work on... For example, partnership and domination morality, which are very, very different. I mean, he writes about dominator moral insensitivity and partnership moral sensitivity, etc. You should go to BenjaminFranklinPress.com. And I might as well give my own website, which is RianEisler.com. And there's two E's in the middle there. It's R-I-A-N-E-E-I-S-L-E-R.com. And your other site is partnershipway.org, isn't it? That's right. And, you know, I mean, my children, my grandchildren, I'm very, very blessed now. And But being so engaged and being having the privilege of doing meaningful work, and we need to change the economic system so that we can all do more meaningful work. I mean, people thrive that way. And we can do that by moving to what I call the caring economics. Beyond so... I interrupted you when you were about to go back to talk about this notion of human nature and whether it is fundamentally flawed, uh, as so many people seem to think. I want to give you the chance to go into that. Well, as you said, uh, the reality, of course, when we're told that, oh, you know, rape is uh, is an adaptation so men can pass on their genes and war, you know, is this. Of course, you know, that's sort of the rape thing is really bizarre because a lot of rapists kill their victims and that's hardly a way of passing on their genes, right? Yeah. But, but anyway, uh, just every behavior that we humans engage in is rooted in evolution. If it weren't genetically possible, we couldn't do it. So that's absolute nonsense. But the emphasis has been so much on the negatives, hasn't it, rather than on the positives. So in my work, I point out some realities. For example, by the grace of evolution, we humans get endorphins, rewards of pleasure from our brain neurochemistry, not only when we are cared for, but when we care for another. We've all experienced it, you know, whether it's for a child, a lover, a friend, even a pet. We feel great. 
So we have a brain neurochemistry, actually, that is primed for more partnership relations. So we always have to come back to to gene expression because we have the genetic potential for caring or for cruelty, right? Yeah. And our brain develops in interaction with its environment and, of course, certainly is mediated by families when we're young, but also by our cultures and subcultures because families don't arise in isolation. And as I mentioned, rigid domination systems require these domination families. You know, it's not coincidental, as I said, that the rightist fundamentalist alliance or that today's, you know, regression to so-called religious fundamentalism, that they emphasize so much these very rigid rankings in families and very punitive families. It affects our how our brains develop. So I think we have a lot to unlearn about, quote, human nature. Uh, just because something is something that we're capable of doesn't make it human nature. As you were speaking, I thought of something, and that is in our development, if the hormones that are being released in our system are more along the lines of the fear hormones like adrenaline and cortisol. Those tend to become, by the compulsion to repeat in a sense, the drug of choice. People also get a rush of power if they can get it. Um, And what you're suggesting, I think, is that we need to relearn a different sort of body chemistry of releasing these endorphins and what that can feel like and where that can take us. Well, you know, it's been really very much shown that uh, our brains, we adapt to our environments. And if you are living in, in a family that's very punitive, very ranked, your brain neurochemistry will go to fear fight or flight, and you'll have much more cortisol, much more neuropinephrine. You see what I'm saying? I mean, it sounds technical, but we know this from neuroscience today, but you wouldn't know it, would you, from the conventional conversation. So we've got to change the conversation. We've got to change it in every conceivable way. I mean, for example, I really want people to consider that just by changing the conversation from capitalism versus socialism to caring economics, we're changing, aren't we, the cultural norms. Because if more and more of us use this language, it'll become common language, won't it? And that changes the values, doesn't it? Yes, and we are doing that right here and now. You're listening to Living Hero at livinghero.com. I'm Jari Chevalier, and I'm talking today with social scientist and author Rian Eisler. What is the role of pleasure and uh, sexual pleasure in particular in the societal issues we've been looking at? You published a book called Sacred Pleasure, Sex, Myth, and the Politics of the Body, New Paths to Power and Love, and you've really looked at the role of pleasure. I wonder if you could go into that somewhat. Well, actually, I have to say that's still one of my favorite books because it was just an amazing revelation to me as I began to understand how basically domination systems 
I mean, there are two basic human motivations, pain and pleasure, right? Abdomination systems rely so much more on pain. And partnership systems really can rely much more on mutual pleasure. And I became aware also how many of our sacred images actually sacralize either the infliction or the suffering of pain. And that was really amazing, especially when I compared them to some of the earlier imagery, like the sacred marriage, for example, which really sacralizes pleasure, you know, sexual pleasure. Um, or when I saw a little figure from Chattaluyag of a seated, uh, presumably a goddess figure, giving birth. I mean, we wouldn't, we don't have any sacred image of the act of birth giving. And until very recently, um, I mean, I still remember how school teachers, if they were pregnant, they were fired, you know. I mean, they, they, they couldn't teach because, oh, children shouldn't see this obscene thing like a giving of life. Can you imagine? I mean, it, it, it's bizarre, isn't it? So again, you know, the fact that we're not doing that anymore is part of the movement to partnership. So that book was really fascinating for me to really to do the research and to to, to then analyze the so-called sexual revolution in terms of two contrasting elements. In part of it, a regression to the domination system, um, and part of it is movement towards partnership, except we lump it all together. Because if you don't have those two analytical lenses, all you see is that change without seeing that, for example, the idea of pornography, which was making it so available and so visible, not that it wasn't before there, but it wasn't it wasn't in these quantities. But pornography really is about equating sex with domination and violence, isn't it? It's humiliating. It's distinguished from erotica, which is... people find it a turn-on, obviously. But of course they find it a turn-on because they've learned to associate... Because it's about sex, okay? Sex is a turn-on, all right? But erotica can be a turn-on, too. But the function of pornography is to get people to really associate pleasure with domination and violence, too. You see what I'm saying? Yes, and it also tends to uphold and support the larger power structure. Absolutely. Absolutely. So That's exactly what it does. And the media are also in service to that. So we're back around to really taking it upon ourselves, as you said, to see to it that these changes are made in every facet of our society. Yeah, and we, I think we really need to understand that the old social categories like right versus left or religious versus secular or Eastern versus Western, a colleague of mine calls them weapons of mass distraction because none of them connect the dots, do they? To the, I mean, the kinds of things that we've been talking about here. You would never know. You would never know, for example, about it. We did a study at the Center for Partnership Studies showing that actually the status of women can be a better predictor of the general quality of life than gross domestic product. I mean, it makes sense once you start thinking about it. But people aren't taught to think that way, so we've got to change that. Mm-hmm. Well, you did write a whole book on the educational system, Tomorrow's Children. I just want to urge everyone to get a list of Rianne Eisler's books. 
and just see which one you gravitate to first and second and just go right down the list. They are all fantastic and they all highlight a particular issue of this total systems change that is underway and we need a lot more work. The fragmented education with which we have been raised has not really prepared all that many of us for this global kind of thinking, and I applaud you for having that capacity and for helping others to get in touch with it in themselves. I think that this shift in worldview and shift in a model, an entire model of reality is a reflection of a change in consciousness, a deep encounter with with nature, with the nature of the self, a deep healing of one's own psychic wounds. This can come about through a variety of ways. You said yourself that you've been on your path. There are quite a number of paths to that healing, including mystical experience. And I just hope that more and more people find the path that's going to work for them. Awareness through books like yours can be either a turbocharge on the path or or an introduction. One last thing, the issue of creativity. You often in your books use the phrase consciousness, caring, and creativity together. What is the creative piece as you see it? Well, we are all born creative, uh, and I think that's a very exciting thing, too, that this part of the movement towards partnership we're no longer just thinking, well, you know, and Einstein was creative. I mean, he was, sure, very. But there is what we can also call everyday creativity and political creativity and social creativity. And, you know, we need to recognize that every one of us has that gift. But we also need to recognize that, of course, real creativity is a threat to domination systems, isn't it? Because you're afraid, first of all, you know, if you make a mistake, something terrible is going to happen to you. Well, creativity means that you make mistakes. <laughs> you just have to, you know, understand that. By the way, I should mention something. I'm teaching again, and I'm teaching in a wonderful program that's an online program through the California Institute of Integral Studies. Uh, it's a transformative leadership program. And what I'm teaching in is a master's degree with a concentration in partnership studies in transformative leadership. And we're starting a new introductory course in January. And I, it's online, so you can take it from wherever you are and talk about creativity. I mean, that's what made me think about it. We had our first contingent last January. The kinds of things that these People who took that course came up with one woman who works for the city and county of San Francisco. She developed a partnership audit of the policies and practices of the city and county of San Francisco. And it's brilliant. I mean, it's being used now. Do you see what I'm saying? I mean, this is fantastic news and good for you for partnering with the California Institute of Integral Studies to set this up. It's very exciting. What it is, it's a chance to really become partnership leaders, to really immerse yourself. And if you go to my website, com, there is a section on the left on the menu side 
on, I think it's called the Greens and Workshops or something like that. Join us because it's really a fabulous experience. And the people in the course, oh, I mean, it's a whole community now. You know, the work that they're doing, I mean, and also it's an opportunity to be an intern with the Center for Partnership Studies, which some of these students are doing. That's wonderful. Well, my very last question to you is about what you're working on now and what's on the horizon for you. So I see that you're back to teaching. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about what you see ahead, more writing? Well, more writing. I do want to be, if possible, in an advisory role to the Obama administration because I think I have something to offer that is important, which is a fresh perspective that I think is so congruent, really, with Obama. Obama is very much of a partnership leader in so many ways. And I, yes, I, I'm certainly working on seeing that more women will be part of the cabinet. You know, we should have half women. We're half the population. I mean, the Nordic nations, which have a higher standard of living for the general population, which have less crime, which have the longest lifespans, which have far less stress and much more caring policies, health care, child care, paid parental leave. They have about 40% of the legislature is women. We're so happy that finally now we have 16% after this election. It's ridiculous. So we've got to have real participatory representative democracy. We have to change that. So that's one of the things I'm engaged in. And, of course, as you saw, I'm really beginning to look at the neurochemistry also of partnership and domination systems, which is fascinating. Wonderful. Well, may it be so that Barack Obama is a transcendent leader, and I do think he's modeled a transcendent way of being in many of his speeches and in the way he campaigned. I look forward to talking with you more. I thank you so very much for your work. And it's been such a privilege to have this hour with you. It's been a pleasure talking with you.